The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this month marks the 75th year or anniversary of the publication of Nancy Mitford's breakthrough novel, The Pursuit of Love. I'm very pleased to be joined by Laura Thompson, Nancy Mitford's biographer, to talk about this wonderful book, which I read, I'm ashamed to say, only for the first time over the weekend and absolutely loved. Laura, you describe it, I think, in your in your book as being... Nancy Mitford's best-known novel. Is it also her best? Yes, that's a good question. And it, I, I was thinking exactly that when I was rereading it with the same amount of pleasure as, as you, I imagine, rereading it for about the 50th time over the weekend. There are two great Nancy Mitford novels. This is one. And three years later, she wrote Love in a Cold Climate. And it's not dissimilar, some of the same characters, there's crossover, same sort of world, all that kind of thing. But you could probably say Love in a Cold Climate is more polished, more accomplished. Maybe the plot is more carved out, more honed. Evelyn Waugh said that the pursuit of love was planless. And he has a point, maybe, but I think the thing about the pursuit of love is it has magic. It has more magic than the other one. It comes from... It was a book that she, I think, had to write. She said, my fingers itch for a pen and she had to write it and she wrote it in three months. And I think a book that's born on a breath of creativity like that, I think that communicates to the reader. And I think that's why it's perhaps the most loved of her books. Now, it's often described as being autobiographical. Yeah. But... In quite a complicated way, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I suppose for readers who don't know the work, its heroine and its narrator are slightly, you know, at an angle from each other, aren't they? I mean, it tells the story of Linda, Mm -hmm. who is a cousin of the narrator, Fanny, and her... her pursuit of love. And Fanny... Fanny isn't... you know, she's sort of at base camp, isn't she? (laughs) I love Fanny. She's so sensible. I suppose it's like the two sides of Nancy in a way, you know, the sane and adult and worldly side versus the hyper-romantic side that is expressed by Linda and the kind of, you know, they're very much at odds in that one is self-educated, you know, she has a kind of questing, drifting, natural intelligence, but no self-discipline whatsoever, that's Linda, whereas Fanny has been brought up in a much more conventional way and so on and so forth, which I think is what Nancy in a way would have liked in another way, you know, she was much better off with the wild Mitford life. But the device of having the narrator, Fanny the narrator, it, it, it is an odd one in a way. I think it works really, really well because to get inside Linda's head, you know, a lot of it is from the outside. A lot of it is, I lost touch with Linda at this point, blah, blah, blah. But to get inside Linda's head, which is this odd mixture of, you know, dreams and drifting and etc etc I think would be unsatisfying to the reader I think she's much better viewed from the outside but I don't I wondered what you actually thought about that Sam did that strike you as odd that it was Fanny telling the story as it were well not completely it slightly struck me that 
you know, I mean, it, it's a device you find elsewhere. You know, she is mm. sort of Sal Paradise while Linda is Dean Moriarty. You know, there's <laughs> or, or, you know, Nick in Great Gatsby versus Gatsby. You know, does that I mean, maybe that was even mm. an influence. But that idea well, of having a... the sensible narrator and the sort of transfixingly wild central character seemed to me to be, you know, it's got precedence. Absolutely. And in fact, I'd, ne I'd never thought of Gatsby before. That's a really good analogy. Some people say, which I think is, I don't know, there's still an element of disrespect to Nancy because she's not a, she's what she called herself, you know, I am an uneducated woman. She's unschooled, as it were, in the way that she writes. And there is a, there, there is a theory that when Brides Have Revisited was sent to her at the end of 1944 to read, that that gave her the idea, that Charles Ryder gave her the idea for the, the onlooker character, as it were, watching the glamorous family from, from the sidelines, as it were. There's no doubt that Brideshead and Pursuit of Love, they did come out at a similar time and that they did touch a very similar nerve because both are recreating worlds that by the end of the Second World War had effectively gone. They were both incredibly successful. And of course, Nancy Mitford and Evelyn Moore were very, very good friends. And he did try to tell her to rewrite parts of the book, which she completely ignored. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, that, I mean, their relationship, you know, as you read the book, to me at least, there's certainly, there's a flavour of war. There's that same kind of, you know, sentence by sentence, black wit that's in there. Is that how you saw it? How interesting. I'm, I'm longing to, because, I mean, I first read it when I was 14, you know, and naturally was completely bouleversed by it because I came from a middle-class upbringing and on the one hand I read Agatha Christie and on the other hand I read Thomas Hardy. I'd never read anything quite like this before, which was clearly literary, but also so much fun. You know, it hadn't occurred to me that a pleasure didn't have to be a guilty pleasure. And so she kind of... You know, Nancy's been a huge influence on me in a way because because that idea, which is it's a very feminine style that she has and a very feminine voice. It's a voice like no other. And she's completely confident in it and takes you with her. But of course, I took it completely at face value, this incredible family who are the Mitfords. Yes, but not quite, as you rightly say. And then the end, it turns into this passionate, wonderful romance with this Frenchman who, you know, which again, I absorbed completely at 14. But to read it as a as a fully fledged, highly literate adult, I'm so interested in how it struck you. You know, one of the things I'm surprised to hear you say is that it only took her three months to write, because even though... You know, there's something too. I think War's argument that you know it it doesn't completely have a plot. You know, it, or at least it, it, it has, a, I suppose, three big episodes, which are you know the unsatisfactory first marriage and the leading up to that, the uh, even more unsatisfactory second marriage, and then this this affair, which is you know the great love with Fabrice the Frenchman. You know, paragraph by paragraph and sentence by sentence, it seems to me extraordinarily polished. Mm. I mean, you know, the turns of phrase are diamond bright and the, you know, it just makes you laugh sentence by sentence. I, I, I find in a way that, you know, that reads like it's been sort of very carefully, carefully put together. But perhaps that's she just had that that gift. Well, it was her fifth book. But I when I read it again, I was struck by how technically accomplished it is, actually, mainly by the 
I mean, the, the first part, which was the part that Evelyn Waugh thought was the most successful, and he wouldn't be alone in that opinion, good Lord, is the recreation of the famous Mitford childhood, which, of course, before Nancy had never been written about. Now we now it's part of it. She's a kind of the architect of the Mitford mythology, if you like, of the the roaring, raging father who in real life was Lord Reedsdale, married to this rather vague and distant mother, and then these rampaging children, seven of them, in reality six girls, one boy, and how they created a kind of world unto themselves on their father's land in the middle of, you know, Oxfordshire and were uneducated in any formal sense and, on the one hand, completely free and in charge of their, you know, forging their own characters, sparking off each other for better or worse, and, of course, that led them in many, many different directions, one toward Hitler, one toward Mosley, one toward communism, and then Nancy toward this gift, and Duchess of Devonshire, of course, Deborah. And on the one hand that, and on the other hand, this it's a very, very circumscribed life because they only ever meet their own kind, they're not allowed to cross the road without a chaperone, etc., etc. And the tension of that Mitford childhood is very, very cleverly evoked in this book, I think. I mean, one of the things I think you you bring out in your biography, so it's this peculiar world in which, well, obviously, in the first place, you know, all of humanity is divided into ons and counter-ons. <laughs> but also that it's, it's, you know, it's this barbaric sort of house where everything is a testament of violence against the natural world. And yes. they adore hunting and indeed sometimes are hunted. <laughs> this is a sort of lovely yes, description. Yes, child them. hunts, yes. Yeah, you know, child hunts and the, the, the neighbours being kind of startled to see these four ragged children being chased by horse and hounds across the village green. <laughs> but also they're, they're desperately sentimental about animals. Yes, baby badgers. All they, all they want is a baby badger. That's one of the things I love so much about it, which I don't think love in a cold climate has, is that outpouring without her almost being aware of it's kind of seeping through her skin onto the page of that world of the what you say about the the realities of life in the country you know that outside the window you can hear a, a live hen being carried off by a fox or you can hear screams you can see blood you can and and also the realities of growing up in the country and this powerful boredom that, of course, in real life was so productive for these girls, whether for better or worse. Like in the book, when they say, what time is it? 10 to 6, better than that, 5 to 6. You know, they're longing for the time to go because they want to be out in the world and being, you know, living like grown-ups, as they think. But this, this, the wonderful way she describes, for example, her sister's coming out dance, which they've longed for, as if for, you know, Nirvana, and their terrible dresses with the floating panels of taffeta, which you can absolutely see, and the 20 oil stoves, because it's never, never, they're always freezing to death. And the, the band, Clifford Essex's third string band, waiting in the cottage of the gamekeeper's wife before they go and do their thing. You know, those details that just come out of her, that just sort of, you know, infuse the book, and that you, you almost don't have to notice them, they're so felt. And all that, all that is just magical, I think. Just magical. Also, it's already framed as elegiac. That's that incredible yes. opening section where there's, which begins, there is a photograph in existence of Aunt Sadie and her six children sitting around the tea table at Alkenley. The table is situated as it was, is now, and ever shall be in the hall in front of a huge open fire of logs. 
Over the chimney piece, plainly visible in the photograph, hangs an entrenching tool with which, in 1915, Uncle Matthew had whacked to death eight Germans, <laughs> one by one as they crawled out of a dugout. It is still covered with blood and hairs, an object of fascination to us as children. But, you know, it's starting with a photograph, isn't it? I mean, there's that wildly yeah. funny aside about the entrenching tool delivered just absolutely deadpan. Yeah. And yet... That's, that, yes. You know, Sorry, it's this photograph. It's, a, it's already, you know, fading into sepia, isn't it? Yeah. That is the almost the, the, the no not almost I think that is the most technically accomplished thing about it how that tension between the unchanging the the table that is was and ever shall be in the hall table and of course it isn't you know it isn't that that tension between that powerful sense of the past and between what is unchanging because it's in the past and this sense of change all the time this well for a start you feel that you you grow closer and closer to the outbreak of the second world war but that tension between the the springing vitality of this family the joy of this family the the love of life that this family has and this kind of elegiac sadness that that works subterraneously through the book I think that is remarkable remarkable I don't know how much of that is a contrivance in her she was a, a natural writer, but she had written four four books before, and they're they're all getting better, better, better. You know, they go from being kind of brittle twenties satires, very much School of Evelyn Moore, and then she gradually found her own voice. And by the time this came along, she had her voice, and she had the story because she just made it as simple as possible. It is autobiographical, not completely. Of course, it's a fusion of artistic truth and literal truth. And she just told it in her own voice. And that, it's when she reaches that point of simplicity that I think she becomes a really wonderful, wonderful writer. Now, you mentioned the war, and of course, you know, that entrenching tool is the First World War, and it's <laughs> heading towards the second. You know, it was published in 1945, wasn't it? So it's obviously been written actually during the Second World War. Mm. How did that sort of shape the book? Because there is a very poignant passage in it where one of the, I think it's Linda, says, you know, we're this generation that's sort of sandwiched, you know, after the First World War and, you know, before whatever's coming. And, you know, we're going to be lost. We're going to be forgotten. Yes. We're going to become a... Uh, and then Davy, her marvellous step-uncle, says we'll become a literary image almost or something like that which is in a way is what's happened to that interwar generation but yes that's a brilliant little passage isn't it she wrote it at, it's such an interesting time in her life when she wrote it really she kind of talks in a letter about how she started writing a semi-autobiography in 1942 she was living in Maida Vale her husband Peter Rod Prod as she he was a deeply unsatisfactory man very good-looking, Balliol scholar, but just a, just a wastrel. And that had been falling apart more or less from day one. So she was living alone in Maidervale and writing this. And then her life changed when she started to sort of socialise with the, the free French who were in London at that time. And she fell in love, as is well known, with de Gaulle's kind of right-hand man, Gaston Palewski, who was a Polish antecedent, but very much a French Parisian man, a sophisticate, very much a, a ladies' man. And he liked Nancy, but she really fell for him. And I think from, well, I suppose from, from D-Day, more or less, she started thinking about moving to Paris. And of course, during the war, she famously worked for Haywood Hill Bookshop. 
which became almost like a club for in which, you know, Cecil Beaton would drop in and Osbert Sitwell would drop in and blah, blah, blah. And it must have been an, a, a, a hoot. But she was offered a partnership in the bookshop by Hayward Hill himself. And she kind of said, oh, mm, don't know. Yeah, maybe. Let's talk after the war. What I want to do right now is write this book. And although the bookshop would have, in a way, got her out to Paris because they were trying to establish an, an outpost in Paris, and the conventional wisdom is all she wanted to do was get to Paris and be with Polevsky. And the book is all about him and, you know, etc. I don't see it like that. I think she was an artist and a writer. And what she wanted to do was write her book. And I think in some way, Polevsky did liberate her to write the book because there's this thing in, in The Pursuit of Love where the French lover, who is a, an idealised Polevsky, you know, Polevsky was not a rich duke for a start, and he says, oh, what he always says to her is, raconte, raconte, tell me more about your family, tell me more about your family. And that was what Nancy used to do for Palevsky. And I think it just sort of came like that on paper, that that was enough, that you could, you could enchant with that reality, garnished and embellished and turned into art. But I think the idea, which I've heard said, that Palevsky was her muse and Polevsky liberated her to write beautifully. Now, I think that's a bit much, frankly. I think she was a wonderful writer and, you know, something would have happened anyway. Well, Polevsky and Fabrice, as he appears in the, in the novel, does it, it's kind of hinge in the novel, isn't it? And I'm really interested in what your view of, you know, I mean, it's called The Pursuit of Love. The view in the novel of what love is and whether it's, you know, this wildly romantic version of it is possible is kind of ambivalent, it seems to me. I mean, I yes. was saying to you just before this that my, you know, I borrowed my wife's copy of this book because she loves it and she thought it was hugely romantic. And I thought, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. You know, with Fabrice, there's this line that Linda says, you know, they didn't really know each other. What they had was endless laughter and really good sex. Yeah. And, you know, the relationship went that far and then, you know, no spoilers, it's sort of cut off at the end yes. of the book. And that's all, all that remains. Where do you think she situates herself? Because it seems to me quite a lot of the way through the book, it's quite a cynical book. You know, Fanny's sensible, but she's also very dry and very debunking in her view of everything, isn't she? Yes, and she talks about... Because Fanny has married a young Don and she has what we would call a normal family life young children and she talks with she says it's nothing actually but a series of pinpricks you know somebody's ill somebody's shouting blah 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 and and then she says but Linda had had feasted on honeydew and it's it's an odd one because I agree with your wife and I agree with you <laughs> and I think that's part of the wonder of this book I've never ever read a book that convinced me more that this woman is in love with this man and no other will do you know, in real life, when your friends say, oh, I'm so in love, and you kind of think, yeah, I know, but you could meet someone else. You don't have to ruin your life over this particular person. It's very hard to convince another person, an outsider, of the importance of that love object and no other. But I think she does it. I think she does it. I think that scene when he comes back to her during the war and he comes back to her and he said, I have to come back and tell you I love you. And, you know, I've read it so many times, it kind of makes me well up every single time. And I'm not really like that. I'm not really a terribly romantic person. But there's something about the way that's written with the hovering of war, with the, yes, 
illusory quality of the whole thing. But just because it's illusory doesn't mean you the feelings aren't real. And I think she absolutely convinces you of that. But of course, what she what they do throughout, which is so brilliant, is set Linda against the character of Fanny's mother, the bolter, the bolter, so funny, <laughs> who just goes from husband to husband. And, you know, her heart is never really engaged. And, and Linda's great terror is being like the bolter. And of course, she is like the bolter. She goes through poor old Tony Krozig, who she marries, you know, off the debutante dance floor, as it, as it were, who's a terrible bore. Then Christian Talbot, who's a glamorous communist, shades of her sister Jessica there, of course. And then to Fabrice, the Duc de Sauveterre. And every time she does think it's love. So there is, is she the bolt or is she not the bolt? You, you know, that whole thing. But I think while you're in it, while you're in that romance between her and Fabrice, you, I believe in it more than any love affair I've, I've ever read. And, you know, that's a great gift. And she writes with lightness. She writes with ease. There's no apparent penetrating profundity. And yet there must be, you know. Yeah, it's quite unexpected, isn't it, when Fabrice comes and does that. It's a great coup de théâtre because we, we've been set up to overhear that he has another mistress on the go in yeah. London and that, you know... I mean, was this a sort of element of wish fulfilment almost? I mean, was oh. did, did Nancy's real-life lover ever do that? No, he didn't. And, you know, this is, this is really interesting because when I... My book is a reissue, so I had the luck first time around of meeting the two surviving Mitford sisters. So that was Deborah, Duchess of Devonshire, and Diana which was even more fascinating, the widow of Sir Oswald Mosley. Yes, Lady and, Hitler, uh, she used to be called, didn't she? Uh, Lady Diana Hitler, I think, was private eyes joke. <laughs> but of course, she was completely fantastic. And, you know, the Mitford charm in full flow is quite a thing. I mean, this book is a charming book. This book is, is all about Mitford charm. Creamy English charm, as war famously, you know. But they, Diana, when I talked about it to Diana, she and, and, and Deborah... They kind of said, oh, well, Nancy was a fantasist. I remember Deborah saying to me, no, a woman needs a proper husband and proper children. And Nancy's life was fabulous, but faute de mieux. Because, you know, to write about these things is not, is not the same as, as living them. And Diana said, oh, well, you know, me with my lovely four boys and my lovely husband, you know, open to disagreement on that. But it... <laughs> Loveliness may vary. <laughs> But they took the view that, that she lived in a, in a world of illusion and that there was something marvellous but slightly pathetic about it. Well, of course, I'm on Nancy's side because I see it from the, the, the literary or whatever point of view. And I think that to create Fabrice was as much pleasure to her as the real thing. I don't know that, but I think she fell in love with Polevsky because he was French and her subsequent novels always have this idealised Frenchman in them. And, you know, she loved Paris. She wanted to get away from England. The years of the 1950s, when she, having been very poor, she said, with the pursuit of love, I sat under a shower of gold. She made £7,000 in, in six months, and then it just went on and on and on and on. It was a, a massive, massive hit. And I think she was very, very happy in those those years in Paris, the, certainly the 1950s. And, it, you know, I think she did live in her imagination. And the real Pilevsky, she knew perfectly well he was. And when she gives Fabrice a possible mistress, it's kind of like saying to herself, 
love is. Yeah, you know, one has to be grown up about these things, but you take what you can from it. So there is an element of realism in the way it's, but the feelings, this childlike quality that Linda has and that I think Nancy also had, those feelings are beautifully, powerfully rendered, I think, really exquisitely so, but set against, as you so rightly say, the possibility that others would not see it that way and that would it last, you know, etc. Is that very kind of cold appraising? I mean, one of the things that maybe introduces certainly, you know, makes it harder to empathise with Linda for some of us is her, you know, she has a daughter yeah, yeah. with poor old Tony Cronick. And one of the funniest, most warlike passages in the book, which actually made me yelp with laughter, is when, when we're introduced to this poor daughter, Moira, I think she's called, as a newborn, as she's described as a, a howling orange. <laughs> and just at the lightest touch, it's incredibly heartless and absolute, her rejection of this daughter. You know, it's just, oh, best not to look, you know, ghastly little thing. Yeah, yeah best not to look is, is, is hilarious. I mean, it, it's a... An amazing thing that she pulls Linda off, really, because, you know, she is in many ways a very insubstantial person, no doubt about it. But what you touch on there with the when she says to Fanny, oh, don't don't look at her, you know, this poor bloody baby. There is this always this subversive quality in in Nancy's book. I mean, the, the bit that always pulls me up is when she's going off to Spain to join her second husband, Christian, the communist. They're going to help the refugees from the Spanish Civil War, which is something Nancy herself actually did. For all the campaigning extremism of her other sisters, she was the one who actually went and did that with, with her husband. And she's getting on the train and Fanny says, you know, you may not be alone. Foreigners, I believe, are greatly given to rape. And Linda says, yes, that would be nice. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, and yet today, young women will be reading this book saying, oh, isn't she lovely? Isn't she charming? And that's like an absolute kind of, you know, heresy, really. But she gets she gets away with these rather, and Love in a Cold Climate is absolutely full of these heresies. She gets away with it because she has this, I don't know, smiling benevolence of style and this assurance and this politesse and this utter, utter charm that puts a veil of enchantment over the whole thing. Yes, do you think Do you think she wants to make... I mean, in the relationship with Moira particularly, do you think Nancy's kind of just sort of cynically laughing about this, or do you think there's a sense in which she wants to make, make Linda look like a bit of a monster? Do you think she's trying to sort of alienate the reader or hold, hold your sympathies off? with her treatment of the daughter? Or do you think it's just a sort of jokey side thing? Because obviously motherhood, you know, mm. is an issue for Nancy, let's say. Yes, I mean, she herself couldn't have children. She had an ectopic pregnancy after her first affair with a free French officer. And she came around from the operation and was told she couldn't have children. Whether she would have wanted them, I don't know. And her attitude to motherhood in this book is, is really interesting, as you say. I mean, she sets... Lady Alkenley, Muv, who is a, I mean, she said, absolutely exact portrayal of her own mother. It isn't really. The woman in the book is more benign, really, than, than Sidney Reesdale, who was quite a cool character and had quite a fraught relationship with Nancy. She sets her against Fanny's 
aunt who brings her up, Emily, who is exemplary, exemplary mother. Fanny is an exemplary mother. Linda's sister, Louisa, is an exemplary mother. The bolter is a terrible mother. <laughs> and Linda, is she trying to alienate the reader? I don't know. I don't know. She does. Later on, she offers an excuse, doesn't she, Linda? She says, I didn't want to get too close to Maura because I knew that I wouldn't stay with her father. Is that an excuse? Kind of. I don't think she's trying to alienate the reader. No, no. I think she just presents Linda for what she is. I mean, did she not entirely win you over then, Sam, as a character? Oh, no, she sort of did win me over. But it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, in probably any ordinary work of fiction would be, you know, a sort of red flag would be saying, look, this this character is, you know, cold or selfish or yeah. whatever. And yet that's not quite how... You know, somehow, as you say, the sort of magic of the book prevents you from from passing that sort of judgment on her quite. Yes. I mean, you know, and even when the bolter shows up, you know, with Juan in tow and, you know, sort of starts putting her hand on her arm and saying, you know, you and me, we're just the same. We're fallen women. You know, that's all played for comedy. You know, Linda's sort of horror at the idea that she might be like the bolter. You, know, you sort of see that Linda doesn't have that view of herself. No, she is a complete romantic. She is a complete romantic and lives sincerely. And it is a supremely sincere book, I think, even though, you know, she's not really a satirist, I don't think, Nancy. I think her, she tried to be in her earlier novels. She satirises the, the society to which she belonged. But I think as she got older and also envisaged an escape from it, I think she saw England through a benevolent lens, as it were. And I think her mature philosophy, as it were, is one of affirmation. And I would say supremely non non-judgmental. Well, well the only people she the judges. Chronix, in the she's very judgmental about oh, the great, yes, ghastly bourgeois, new money, right wing, preserving privilege and that you know, I, I, it feels to me like the first half of the book is is extremely satirical. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. I mean I don't see it that way, but it's yes, she does she is judgmental about the Krozigs, that's absolutely right. And there is that really interesting setting kind of old Tory landowning values versus the Krozigs, who he's been governor of the Bank of England, and the primacy of money. And of course they're very good hate figures because they're bankers, you know. And, and their country house in Surrey, which they don't count as the country, and the terrible flowers and yes, all that. Yes, the description of the garden, was, you know, it's got the only time it's tolerable is when it's blanketed in the forgiving snow. <laughs> That's and... right. And the fact that it's called Plains is very... It's a bit like Lord Copper's country mansion at East Finchley, isn't it? Yes, she is hard on the Crozigs, but I think it's also to bring out the... Because, of course, the whole point about this book, really, is that everything she's describing in it has gone, is going. You can either feel it going like this, as it were, old Toryism of the landowning classes and how she talks about her father and his relationship with his gamekeepers and all that in a very, very affectionate and, well, that she believes in that, really. But, but of course, that's coming to an end. And, of course, as Evelyn Moore said, you voted for Attlee and then scarpered to Paris. But she is describing a world that's that's ending, hence the much of the appeal of the book, same as with Brideshead. But what she's also describing is a family that no longer exists. You know, the, the, the Alkenley marriage, Lord and Lady Alkenley, it, it feels immutable that Favre loves Marv, he adores her, and, and nothing must ever, you know, upset her, all that kind of thing. 
Well, in real life, Sidney Reesdale lived on an island in Scotland and David Reesdale had gone off with the housekeeper. And, of course, the only person who supports Hitler in the book is, is poor old Krozig, <laughs> Celeste Krozig. And in real life, two of Nancy's sisters thought that Hitler was the bee's knees. So it's a kind of, it's a book that sort of purges the Mitfords of their darkness, which was very, very considerable. And reconstitutes the family in this way that so many people now love them for their, well, again, that word charm. I mean, I'm overusing it, but in a way you can't overuse it because it is what they had. And even though in reality, when Linda goes away with the communists and goes to the Spanish Civil War, what really happened was that Jessica Mitford ran away with her cousin and her parents didn't know if she was alive or dead. And it was a, a very, you know, serious kind of family trauma, as it was when Diana Mosley went to set herself up as Oswald Mosley's mistress and when Unity went to Munich and became a close friend of Hitler. Those things were, you know, of, of operatic darkness and serious import. And in the book, they're transmuted. In the book, they're lightened and given this magical quality because she purges all the bad stuff and just keeps the the idea of children rebelling, but without without the sinister aspect. I mean, one of the things I'm sort of interested in getting your take on is, is this issue of, you know, I mean, I think there's a throwaway joke somewhere about two thirds of the way through where she says, you know, well, you know, politics has got much livelier since that nice Mr. Hitler came along. <laughs> but, you know, she's writing it in 1942, as I think you said. Well, that was the beginning. No, she really wrote it in the first months of 45. But yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay, so in the first months of 45. So she's writing, you know, when... Things are pretty dark. Yeah. Does she, the seriousness of the war doesn't seem to enter into it very much. Oh, do you not feel that? Towards the end, of course, events. But, but, but the idea that what's happening is extraordinarily, you know, dark and it's chewing up people and I don't know what whether at the point she was writing it what was going on in the camps was known. But she does seem to keep a lot of that out of it. Yes, Partly, I think, for the reason that I, I said about purging her family of the terrible taint that the war had left upon them. I mean, her father, who in the book is the most anti-German person it's possible to conceive. Well, in fact, he hates all foreigners. All abroad is bloody and all the whatever he says. But he particularly hates Germans. And of course, in real life, Lord Reedsdale had gone to Nuremberg. He had met Hitler. He had shown sympathy with the Anglo-German, whatever it was, set up by Lord Londonderry with Ribbentrop, you know, all this kind of thing. They were completely implicated in all that until David Reedsdale, as Nancy put it, recanted like Latimer and wrote a kind of mea culpa in the Times saying, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, it was terrible and I should never have done it. So I think... What she's partly doing is is reconstituting the Mitfords in a in a different form, as it were, and as I say, turning their rebellion into something more palatable. Yes, the focus is more on the Spanish Civil War. Yes, you do get the seriousness of that. I think. Yes. Did her sort of fast curious sisters take again <laughs> this book? Well, Diana's extraordinary because she never really dared let down her guard about Oswald Mosley, and say, yes, I went to Holloway Jail for three years and it was all for nothing. You know, it had to have meant something, really. 
And of course, she did remain very right wing, but she did sort of say to Deborah, you know, I don't always think he's right kind of thing. But I think their view of the book, I mean, certainly Lady Reesdale's view of the book was was not favourable. She wrote to Jessica and said, oh, my God, this family again, you know, why is she writing about us kind of thing, which was deeply ungrateful in the circumstances, given that if it hadn't been for Nancy's book, what we would think about the Mitfords is that they were a bunch of extremist maniacs, instead of which people are kind of enchanted and go around Oxfordshire more or less on a tour of their habitats, <laughs> thinking how absolutely fabulous they are. So Nancy, I do think, by creating this Mitford mythology and reconstituting their childhood as something unbelievable, you know, fable-like, it's a bit like Enid Blyton. It's a bit like the Brontes at Howarth. It's it's a bit like Rapunzel in her tower. And at the same time, it's this, you know, English countryside that still holds a, a romantic appeal in our psyche, I think, for many of us. So she, by reconstituting the, the Mitfords in that way, she did them an enormous favour by parceling them up in a beautiful package with a lovely bow on it. But I don't know that her sisters, I think they were probably a bit put out by it, really, because, um, well, you know, a writer in the family is a bit of a liability. You never know what they might do. But they did, subsequently, a lot of them did, did write books. And Jessica's Hans and Rebels is a bit like The Pursuit of Love with a flying a red flag at the same time. It's a bit the same. And they did, she did sort of G them up in that way, I think. But I think she also did them an enormous favour with this book. Well, I guess it's the testament to the enduring power of the Mitford charm, isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's a lethal charm, really. But I think it has the quality of knowingness. It's like you're in the joke with what she does, really, Nancy, because the upper class, you know, when when they say whatever Oscar Wilde did was worse than murder. Well, in some people's eyes, being upper class is worse than murder. But she manages to bring you in, welcome you in, make it a world that is both alien and yet you're kind of in it with her. She's the smiling gatekeeper to this to this world. And by so doing, she she kind of, she forestalls criticism, really, I think. Laura Thompson, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.